You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. I read an article on the 10 most famous successful assassinations of all time. Uh, And it was interesting to me to note how many of these assassinations were attempted and completed in order to stop the work that the person was doing. For example, the article spoke about Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States, whose tenure was from 1861 to 1865. John Wilkes Booth had become very angry with the president for his work to give greater freedoms to black Americans. So he became determined to assassinate Lincoln. And on April 14, 1865, Lincoln went to the theater. And Booth happened to be there, of course, following him, and he noticed that there was only one security guard slowly making his way around this big theater. And so he seized the moment, and he waited until there was great laughter that filled the room and shot the president in the head. Tragically, he was only 56 years at the time of his assassination. I can't imagine what he would have accomplished had he been able to live on. But Booth believed that by ending Lincoln's life, he could end the abolition of slavery that Lincoln, as a leader, had begun to work towards. Although I don't think it's true of our transition time here, uh, one way to stop a movement is to assassinate the man or men or people who are behind it. But in Nehemiah chapter 6 that we're going to look at today, the wall has progressed. We started off with just rubble, but now the wall has progressed so that it was reported to Nehemiah's enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshem, that it had been built to the point where verse 1 says that there there was no longer any breach. In other words, There were no low places that someone could sneak under. There were no more holes that they could sneak through. And the only weakness that remained open to attack was the gateways that were yet to be hung. As you may recall, there were threats and a lot of shoe-banging from the enemies of the Jews who violently opposed them and the building of this wall Threats that Jeremy spoke about two weeks ago that they would sneak in among the builders and kill them, kill them even as they were building and before they knew what would happen. That's now done. There is no more sneaking that could go on. Because experts believe that the wall could have been up to 40 feet by then with no holes. The only vulnerable parts that were left were the gates. And... No one with common sense would want to attack through a gate because you end up being constricted in the number of people that you can push through there. And even if it's eight across, they can be killed, with, killed very easily and dealt with with a small force of Jewish soldiers and very little time at all. So opportunity lost for Israel's enemies. So it was time for other tactics for battle against Nehemiah and the work that he was trying to do. And what we're going to see today is three ways that people may try to stop you as God works through you, may try to stop us as we try to transition together. Three ways that people may try to stop you as a person as God works through you, 
to stop us as we try to do God's work here together. Verses 2 to 4 show us the first way that enemies can try to stop us from doing God's work in our lives and through his church, and it's by destroying our lives through death. By destroying our lives through death. And what they give us here, uh, kind of as a sidebar, is a really interesting schooling on how to stage a good assassination. In Nehemiah verse 2, reports that the enemies, Sanballat and Jeshem, sent a message to Nehemiah saying, Come, let us meet together at Cherephim on the plain of Ono. That location was about a day away from Jerusalem. Uh, seven miles away from Nehemiah's home. And what we see here is that one key to a successful ex, uh, assassination is to extend an invitation into danger at an opportune time. To extend an invitation to danger at an opportune time. When Nehemiah would have been exhausted from building all day, from sleeping with one eye open at night for fear that he would be assassinated, day and night, 50 days or so, and he'd worked flat out all of the time so the tachometer was on the red line, and can you imagine how tired he would be? How physically weary from the work? How emotionally weary from the worry? How mentally weary from the watchfulness? And a break from manual labor, a break from building who up to that... I mean, up to that point, all of the work that he had done, the physical labor was the lifting of a chalice to his lips to taste wine and then handing it to the king. That was it. So any break would have been welcome. Nehemiah, you must be tired. Your hands must be caked and broken and you know, cut because of the mortar. Your back must ache because of the lugging of stones. Why not take a short trip? Get away from it all. Why not come out and enjoy a day away from all the responsibility with us here at Ono? The invitation to danger was extended at an opportune time. The second key for a successful assassination that we see here is to choose the right place. For books, it was a theater In Nehemiah's case, it was a different place chosen for its ascetic appeal. Because the plain of Ono was a beautiful, lush valley. It was a universe away from dirt piles and mud puddles. From the stinky bodies of the unwashed workers of Jerusalem who may have been too afraid to wash for fear of getting caught in the buff while having a bath if they got attacked. Nehemiah, you must be so tired of looking at stones. You must be tired of facing one crisis after another, of putting out one fire after another. Come and let this view renew your soul. The place was deliberately chosen for its ascetic appeal. An opportune time for staging an assassination, an opportune place for staging the same. And even the word for... for Even the wording of the invitation itself was assuring and hopeful. Those words, getting together, spoke of congenial conversation. We'll just have a friendly chat. Let's talk through the impasse and come to some sort of agreement 
I know, we have exchanged verbal shots back and forth, but if we could just get face to face, we could talk this thing through. Come on, Nehemiah, aren't you tired of fighting? Let's bury the hatchet once and for all. And there is nothing in the text that shows that this was not appealing to Nehemiah at first blush. A well-earned break from exhausting leadership, a time to enjoy beauty instead of boulders, a chance to forge a long-lasting friendship from a long-standing on between long-standing enemies. And yet Nehemiah said, "Oh no," to going to Ono. Oh, Why? The end of verse two. But they were planning to harm me. It appears as if they were really sincere in their desire to bury the hatchet, only it was the back of Nehemiah's head that was the intended target. How did he know that? Well, common sense perhaps. An angry enemy seldom changes his or her stripes without due cause. And there was nothing on the part of Nehemiah's enemies that would change except even greater anger because the wall had been finished. And yet when a project is God's project, he will grant great discernment to its leaders. So God granted Nehemiah any necessary insight that he did not himself possess. And notice how he responds to the invitation to try to get him to stop working. I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should I stop work and leave it and come down to you? It shows us something about Nehemiah's character. That he responds to the enemy's attempts to stop the work by redoubling his effort to do the work. Now I guess that we have to acknowledge his enemies for, for either being persistent or stupid. Perhaps both. Because they sent the same message four times. There's no indication that on the second and third or third and fourth time that they added something like, please, pretty please, or come on, it will be such fun. No. Same message four times. Same response four times because he knew that they'd meant to harm him all of the times. And so their invitation to an assassination, though well-formed and persistently presented, utterly failed. Now it was time for a second tactic from the enemies. A second tactic that gives us another look at what God will, or what enemies will do to try to stop the work of God through our lives and in this place. This is a tactic that I hope we are more likely to encounter than assassination, but it's not that great either way. We see it in verses 5 and 7 and 9. Then Sinballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter this time. And it was written, it is reported among the nations in Gashmu, which is likely another rendering of Jeshem, the Sanballat's partner, an open letter saying this, you and the Jews are planning to rebel, therefore you're rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, and they go from Jerusalem to the, to the area of Judah, a king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king, Artaxerxes in Persia, 
according to these reports. That is a blatant threat. So they say, come, let us take counsel together. In verse 9, Nehemiah diagnoses the intent of the open letter. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. What was the second attack? It was a scandalous rumor of high treason intended to discredit Nehemiah's character. And because it was an open letter rather than a sealed one, which was more common during that day, it meant that anybody who happened to get a peek at this thing or read it would understand what it was said. And this, this would become the grist of the rumor mill that would spread from mouth to ear unchecked. A rumor designed to discredit. And in here we see actually three parts that can make up a false rumor that is intended to stop the work of God through your life and in this place. The first is that a false rumor can, can latch onto what people want to be true, even though it is not true. A false rumor can latch onto what people want to be true, even though it is not true. Sam Ballad put this thing together well. He did so with a complete awareness of the Jewish expectations and dreams for their future. The Jews had been well schooled by prophets and priests alike that they would be restored to Jerusalem in all of its greatness that they once had with a descendant of David on the throne. Nehemiah was probably not a descendant of David or would likely have been mentioned. But the rumor latched on to what people wanted to be true, restoration to greatness in Jerusalem. And a rumor attached to a desire to make it true can make it believable. We've seen this happen. Ponzi master Bernie Madoff made off with millions, not because of his million-dollar smile, but because of his million-dollar lie. People believed it because they wanted it to be true. The promise of losing 110 pounds in 10 weeks for just 10 bucks, that generates money. Not because it's true, but because some of us, like me, want it to be true. A rumor about you or about us can latch on to what people want, to be, want it to be true, and they believe it. You can latch on to something that they want to be true, and they believe it. Second, the source of the rumor can be deliberately exaggerated. He says, it is reported among the nations, St. Ballot says. Really? The nation? Like the whole world? Come on now. Name them so I can speak to them about their accusations. I have lost track of the number of times that someone has reported an issue to me being the spokesperson of many others in a group that are upset. And it's led by lines like, there are a lot of us who are thinking, or there are a number of families that are upset about, and you can fill in the blank with both of those, and my reply over the years has finally become, who are they? Give me their names so that I can talk, so I can understand who I'm dealing with and then respond to them appropriately. And sometimes, like in the foyer last week, somebody expressed a concern to me and when I asked who, 
who he was like, give me some names. And he did, bless his heart. May his tribe increase. Then there are others who say, well, I really can't say. And strangely enough, what that means is that I really can't respond. Because an intelligent response is tailored to the person or persons who have the issue. And sometimes I have discovered that a bunch of people is really that person and their spouse and their children and even an unborn child thrown in there. Or it's me and somebody I go for coffee with now and again. A false rumor can latch on to what people secretly want to be true and its sources are sometimes exaggerated and left anonymous. A third characteristic of a false rumor that will attack is that it will attack a character trait imperative to your success. The cupbearer to the Persian king, as Nehemiah once was and planned to be again, was a position of implicit trust. Nehemiah had served there and offered up his life on behalf of the king time and again so that more and more trust developed as time went by so that when he asked the king's permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, the king granted it to him. When he gave him the timeline, when he asked for materials, the king trusted him implicitly. He even gave him permission to go back to the Jerusalem area, which was rife with revolt all of the time. And the king did this because he trusted Nehemiah's integrity to do only what he said and to come back exactly when he said. What Sambalit's letter does is it calls into question the strongest character trait upon which the relationship between Nehemiah and the king is built, his integrity. Sambalit's threatened to send a letter to King Artaxerxes stating that everyone is saying around here that the man you sent back here is actually going to revolt against you. He's proclaiming himself king in Jerusalem and trying to expand that to all of Judah by sending out prophets to declare it. And those who wish to discredit you through a false rumor may hit you in the one area that you need the most to do God's work. If you need integrity to succeed, they will make you appear dishonest or attempt to. If you need to be hardworking to get a following, they'll make you seem lazy. If you need intelligence, they will claim that you're really a fool. One of the best ways for someone to stop you from doing his work in your life and through your life and in this church is to discredit you in an area of strength that you need the most. Because without that, it just may all crumble like a house of cards. Now, Nehemiah's response is not the only response to a rumor designed to discredit you. And I, I'm not sure it would have been my response. But what he does is he actually uses the integrity that he believes he has as the foundation for that response. He doesn't go around checking who's read what and putting out all of the fires. Instead, he simply replies, perhaps in an open letter of his own in verse 8, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. In other words, because I actually have integrity, I can say that what you are accusing me of is not true, 
but I've got to give you kudos. You have an active and creative imagination. Now, Nehemiah seems determined to complete the work of God. But I believe at the end of the next verse, it actually betrays the effect that false rumors intended to discredit your character can have on your soul. We've noticed in previous chapters of this book, arrow-type prayers, not psalms, just sentences that are fired up to God. And we have another one here. After he responds to these rumors designed to discredit his character, he prays at the end of verse 9, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. O God, give me strength. I'm not sure whether you've ever had your character slandered through false rumors before or not. I have. And Nehemiah indicates here to me that it is exhausting I can testify to that. You go to bed with it and you pray that it will not be there in the morning, but it is your constant companion. It's there when you wake up. You see people talking in clusters in a social setting and they glance furtively at you and you're convinced that they're talking about you even though they might not be, and it is so discouraging. When that happens, Nehemiah shows us that God's help is but a prayer away. Not an eloquent prayer either, just a simple one, a sentence. Oh God, give me strength. If you're weary today from false rumors that are trying to discredit you, that prayer is yours too. Oh God, give me strength. Now there's a final way in which someone can try to stop the changes to try to stop God working through you and in this place. And it's by disqualifying you from service, by encouraging you to sin. By disqualifying you from leadership, by encouraging you to sin. We see that in verses 10 to 13, where Nehemiah enters the house of a priest named Shemaiah, who says to Nehemiah, in a flap no less, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you and they are coming to kill you at night. The repetition of the phrase to kill you along with the mention of night with the fright of its darkness were intended to create an irrational fear in Nehemiah's mind. No longer was he being invited to a retreat with them. They were coming to get him. No longer was this a general threat that you never know where one of my guys is going to throw up and slit, throw up, show up, not throw up, show up and slit the throat of one of your workers. Now we have assassins who are coming here. He has a price on his head, a specific threat of death, death at an ominous time of day. The intent of the threat was to frighten Nehemiah into committing a sin that would disqualify him from leadership and perhaps even cause God to strike him dead. Let's hide in the temple and shut the doors because they're coming to kill you. And the conspirators, conspirators were hoping that a rush of fear would erase Nehemiah's memory of two things, Jewish law and Jewish history. 
Jewish law in 2 Chronicles 23 says that only priests were allowed to go into the inner parts of the temple. Priests and no one else. Nehemiah was not a priest. But his enemies were hoping that fear generated would cause him to forget that and to hide where he didn't belong. The historical part that they hoped would go foggy with fear it was when King Uzziah went into the temple where priests were allowed to tread only. He escaped with his life but suffered the gr grotesque disfigurement of leprosy for the rest of his days. So this third attempt to stop Nehemiah was designed to frighten him into denying his trust in God to, to protect his life and to sin against him by going where he should not go. I think... Fear is a powerful motivator to sin even today. It can overwhelm reason. It can blur the context because it, it shrinks the expanse of time down to right now and it turns trust into survival. In a fear-charged situation, we can lose our trust in God and commit a sin against him that disqualifies us from leadership in the eyes of those who work with us. With rising interest rates, maybe you're afraid that you're going to lose your house. So you embezzle money from your company. And people who work there figure it out. And they quit. You may respond to the fear of being irrelevant and like padding a resume, you spin these grandiose lies of what you have done or you plagiarize someone else's material, stealing theirs and claiming it as your own. Fear of losing someone or something that matters to you can actually make you lash out in unjustified anger against those whom you love. Fear is still a powerful motivator towards sinful behavior that will endanger the work that God is trying to do through your life and in this church. The power of fear to cause sin. It was supposed to work on Nehemiah that way, but it failed. He remained reasonable, saying to the priest, should a man like me flee, and one such as I, in other words, a non-priest, go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. And interestingly enough, it was right after this reasoned response that God gave him supernatural insight because the next verse says, then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat hired him. He was hired for this reason that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report and they could reproach me. In other words, they could spread it around and anyone who thought I was a good leader wouldn't anymore. They tried to use fear to incite Nehemiah to sin and disqualify him from leadership. But God was faithful. He still was. He brought his word back to mind. And he does today. He grants discernment. And he still does today. So three attempts to stop the work that Nehemiah was called to do. Extreme to destroy his life through death. 
to discredit his character through false rumors and to disqualify him from leadership by causing him to sin. And perhaps you find yourself in a place like this today where God's work in your life is not yet complete and where your work for God is not yet complete, where our transition work is not yet complete. And yet there may be some who are behaving like enemies to try to stop that work. What we can be convinced of today, just based on this passage alone even, is that God will complete the work that he has started within you, through you, and in this place. Nehemiah has been there, and God brought about success. And perhaps even more importantly for us to understand today is that Jesus faced these exact same attacks. As he sought to do the work of his father, his life was under constant attack from those who were trying to take it from him in order to stop what he was doing. And yet it was not till the timing of his death coincided with the will of the father that his, he was executed. And even then, his life wasn't taken from him. He gave it up for us. As Nehemiah faced rumors, and you may be the victim of rumors, so too was Jesus. Where at his mock trial, there were so many false rumors from so many different liars that they actually contradicted one another. And Nehemiah faced, as you may face, the temptation not to trust God in a situation and perhaps to sin against him. A temptation like Jesus faced in the wilderness to make his own bread when hungry rather than to rely on his father to provide it. To bow his knee only once to Satan to gain control of the world and bypass the cross rather than follow the plan of his father. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was afraid. I believe more so by the thought of sin-bearing as one who had never sinned before than the torture of crucifixion itself. Yet he submitted to the Father's will despite his fear, and he completed the work that God had given him to do. And the reason why this is so important for us to realize today is because even though Nehemiah is a great example of perseverance under pressure, he's under a lot of dirt right now, while Jesus is very much alive. And if you have accepted him as your Savior and Lord, he is living within you with all of the power and all of the grace and all of the love that can enable you to persevere and complete the work that he has called you to do and that others may be trying to stop. And so allow me to pray for those of you today who are trying to do God's work in your lives and through your lives and in this church but are being attacked in ways that we've noticed today and perhaps some that we haven't even noticed. To pray that Jesus, who faced the threats to his life and his mission, would strengthen you through the resurrection power that brought him back to life again. Please bow with me as we, as we pray. Jesus, we pray to you today and we thank you that you let us in on the kingdom work. That you allow us to do things and build things and change things for your glory. 
But some of us are attacked by those who would seek to destroy us. And so stop what you're trying to do through us and in us in this place. Grant us strength, O God. May the power of Jesus who have suffered as we have, and so much more, but who overcame in the resurrection, empower us to do your will, your work, your way, for your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.